Well, I invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. In our church's confession of faith, it says that true and genuine saving faith can have some fluctuation in degree, meaning it can be stronger or weaker. Uh, That could be true of two different people. One might possess a stronger faith, we might say, but it can also occur within the same individual. It can be stronger, it can be strengthened, but it can also be assailed, and at times it can be weakened also. Uh, But the confession also states that true faith, because it is something that is wrought by the Spirit of God, because it is authored and finished by Christ himself, even where it is in the least degree, even where it is weakest, will still persevere to the end and gain the victory. And so the confession, I think, is just acknowledging and describing what it is that we see in the Bible. That even those possessing true faith, and therefore possessing the Spirit of God, they don't always experience this as one prolonged uh, mountaintop experience, as some might call it. But due to our weakness, we are often in need of having that strength or that faith strengthened. In fact, um, it so happens that our our call to worship was Psalm 6, where we read of David uh, in weakness, talking about uh, his his, uh, tears flooding his bed by night, drenching his couch with his weeping, his eyes wasting away because of grief. Certainly, this great... King, this great man of God, a man after God's own heart, as God describes him, uh, in need of strengthening in that moment in his uh, inner inner being. And often we know, we know what it is that we ought to believe. We often know what it is we ought to do. We know I should not be worrying here. We know I should just trust the Lord with this matter. We know that. But it's not always that simple. The struggle still remains. The battle goes on. I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. We find ourselves in that place. Thankfully, God has revealed himself in his word to be patient, to be a patient God, patient with his people. He is accommodating to our weakness. And he has given us many great assurances along the way. And as we we see this throughout Scripture, and we certainly will see it in our text today in Genesis chapter 15, God has made, as we have seen so far in Genesis, God has made certain promises to Abram. But he has not yet received these promises. Uh, He is getting older as the story goes on, and still he has no child. Uh, let alone many children. He's been promised to have offspring numbering the sand on the seashore, but he doesn't even have one kid yet. Uh, He still does not possess any of the land of Canaan, though the Lord has given him certain blessings within that land, as we have seen. And in this chapter, Abram's going to raise these matters with the Lord, and God reassures Abram. He reassures him with his word. He gives him certain promises, but also he reassures Abram with this covenant-making ceremony, which is ultimately for the benefit of Abram's faith, that Abram might remember this scene that we're going to read about and take greater renewed strength and confidence in the Lord and in what he has promised. But the value of what we read about here in Chapter 15 is not simply for Abram. We also, as the Lord's people many years later, are reminded here again of God's faithfulness. And we can have our minds here renewed and our faith strengthened with the knowledge that this covenant-making God is faithful and he will and must keep his word. And as you grow weary, as your faith might be assaulted and assailed as life takes its toll, be reminded once again that the sovereign Lord has given assurances that he will keep his word. He will keep his promises towards you. And this is what we set our faith and hope upon. So let's read Genesis 15, and then we will work through this together. So Genesis 15, verse 1. It says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. 
Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, uh, if you are able to number them, sorry. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all of these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. When the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So again, we're looking, as we look at this text, the faithfulness of God, that the covenant-making Lord will keep his word so that our faith might be renewed and strengthened here. And so the first thing I want us to consider is to remember God's general promises toward you. Remember God's general promises toward you. Now, this chapter begins with God giving general assurances to Abram that he will protect him and he will indeed reward him. So verse 1 says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. So sometime after, it says after these things, after the events of chapter 14, God speaks in this vision to Abram and he speaks to him reassuringly. Now it's possible that after having defeated this king and rescued Lot, uh, perhaps there is some fear or some concern that Keterlaimer and these other kings are going to regroup and they're going to come back at some point with a vengeance to wipe out this Abram. How dare he assault us in this way? This is a very real possibility or certainly be a, something maybe in the back of your mind if you are Abram. If that's the case, then this assurance that the Lord is, 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 when he says, I am your shield, that would be very helpful to be reminded of that. That even if these men would approach these kings, God will be with you and will protect. Likewise, with the promise of reward, we recall that in the last chapter, Abram rejected the reward that the king of Sodom sought to give to him. He wanted to enrich uh, Abram, and Abram rejected that. And here the Lord now encourages him that he will give Abram a great reward. But the special or the specific way that the Lord will work out these promises is not drawn out. It's not made clear here. These are general assurances and promises that God is with Abram to protect him and to bless him. It doesn't spell out precisely how this is all going to work out. It doesn't mean that he's never going to face any sort of opposition or any sort of trial. Abram doesn't know these kings, 
They might come. They might even surround him. He might have to trust the Lord right to the end as these kings are prepared to attack, as others might come after him. He doesn't know exactly how things will all play out, but he does have this general promise and assurance that the Lord will protect him, that the Lord is his shield. There is much in these words, though general, to sustain Abram in whatever it is that he would face in days and years ahead of him. And for all of those believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, you likewise have many general assurances from God, though you don't know how every detail is going to work itself out in your life. And we do well to cling to these general assurances. God promised Joshua, if you remember, back in Joshua chapter 1, he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He's strengthening Joshua's Joshua's to lead the people of God into the land of Canaan. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 5 tells us that this promise God made to Joshua is not just for Joshua, but it's true of all of his people. It's true for you and for me. And Joshua, or Hebrews 13 quotes this promise to Joshua that I will never leave you nor forsake you and is applying this to you and to me, to the church. This is a general assurance of God's presence with his people at all times. You and I don't know. We don't know what's coming tomorrow. It could be tremendous time of ease and great blessing in a land of plenty, and it could also be a great difficulty around the corner. Uh, We do not know these things, but we do know that God promises whatever that thing might be, he is with us and he will never leave us nor forsake us. God has promised those in Christ Jesus that he will work all things ultimately for our good. Again, this doesn't mean that everything is going to be easy. This doesn't mean that others will not seek to do evil or harm to us. But it does promise that God will be present with us to work all of those things ultimately for our spiritual and our eternal good. There are many such general assurances that God has given to his people to strengthen our faith. And we do well to cling to these, even when our circumstances might seem to suggest the opposite. We see things are difficult, and many would be tempted to say, well, this means God has abandoned me. We experience this thing that we read of even in the Psalms, that this appearance of God turning his face from us. We cling to these truths of Scripture that know he is with us even still, and he promises to yet do good even in the midst of this great difficulty. So we remember God's general promises to us. But secondly, to strengthen faith, remember God's promise of a son. God's promise of a son. God has given Abram his general assurance in verse 1, but Abram responds to that. And it says, but Abram said, verse 2, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Abram's mind here is on the specific promise related to offspring that God has made to him. God has told him that he'd be a great nation. He's going to make Abram into a great nation, from which blessing would come to the whole world. He has promised numerous offspring and promised that they will inherit and live in the land of Canaan. But again, as we noted, at this point, he still has zero children at all. It is with this specific matter in mind that Abram speaks up here and asks the Lord about this. God has promised again he will be with him. He will protect him. He will give him great reward. But he's having trouble reconciling that with his current situation here. So far, his heir, if he were to die, is going to be a servant. No children at all. I don't think that Abram is being completely and entirely faithless here. But he is looking back to the specific promises that the Lord has made. Think back to chapter 12, verses 1 to 3 particularly. And he's wondering how all of this can be, given that he's childless. Having a baby would seem like step one for God fulfilling these things, but years are ticking by and still he continues childless. 
And notice, God doesn't chastise Abram here. Instead, we read in verse 4, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. The Lord responds to Abram's question with, again, further reassurance. Specifically, in this matter related to his offspring. He says, your very own son shall be your heir. Eliezer, however good of a servant he is, he's not going to be the heir. And he promises him that his offspring is going to be as numerous as the stars of heaven. And Abram believes the Lord, we're told here. Now, as we've been working through Genesis, we have seen that this promise of an offspring goes back to chapter 3 and verse 15. And it has been a promise, there's been this promise of a specific individual who is going to come one day. And now as we get to Abram, things are going to get a little more complicated because he has not merely promised one offspring to come, an individual who will be the Messiah, but he has also promised that there's going to be many offspring from him. In fact, we've seen and will see that he's going to be made into various nations. But of course, chief among even those nations, the people of Israel, who will be the people that will inherit this land of Canaan. However, in the midst of this promise of many and numerous offspring, we cannot lose sight of this promise of an individual who was to come from among these many offspring, who would be the one who would bring about blessing to all the nations of the earth. This often is lost in the midst of all of this, that there is still this promise of a singular offspring to come. And I would suggest, I would submit to you that the Bible teaches us that Abram did understand this. That he knew that this promised blessing of all the families of the earth back in chapter 12, verse 3, was the Messiah. And that God was promising more than simply earthly, temporal blessing and land to Abram. But he was promising the Savior of the world that would come from among his offspring. And so his concern here in chapter 15 at the start here is not simply that he wants to have a ton of kids. But that he desires the ultimate blessing of the Messiah to come. And how is that going to happen unless he has offspring? And I would suggest this is why we're told here in verse 6 that he believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. It is not simply that Abram has a generic faith in God. Obviously he does. Obviously he does believe that God exists. He believes in God generally. He believes that God is good. He believes that God is the creator. But he is believing God specifically here with regard to this promise of a savior to come. He grasps that out of his line and from among this nation that's going to come from his offspring, out of these earthly blessings will come the great spiritual blessing of redemption and turning back the curse. So it is through Abram's faith in this promise of God that he receives this blessing of justifying righteousness that is counted to him as righteousness. The very righteousness of Christ, which is yet at this point in history to have been secured in time, is nevertheless preemptively credited to Abram's account. His faith here Abram's faith is apprehending something of the Christ who is to come. And so it is said to be a justifying faith. And if this seems to you like it's maybe a little bit of a stretch, that perhaps I'm reading a little too much into these verses here, consider just a few New Testament reflections on this. In John chapter 8, Jesus is there having a dispute with the Jews and the Pharisees. You perhaps remember this chapter. They claim Abraham is our father. He says, no, the devil is actually your father. And as this dispute continues and it's nearing its climax, 
Jesus says in verse 56, he says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Just let those words have their importance. Let them have their weight. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. According to Christ, according to our Lord, Abraham was looking ahead to Jesus' day. And in fact, he was rejoicing in it. He was glad. He was excited for that day to come. And so I would say then it's necessary for us to conclude that Abram is not merely concerned about a physical son as any one of us might desire to have a child in an earthly manner. His concern goes beyond that, even to this ultimate son who was yet to come from his line, that there's some eagerness and anticipation of that, and he desires that, and he's, that's part of what he's asking about here. Of course, we also read from Galatians chapter 3, where we're told that the promise made to Abraham back in chapter 12, verse 3, that all the families of the earth would be blessed through him, in you, it says, Paul tells us that was the gospel preached beforehand, that it was out of his offspring the Christ would arise, and that Abraham clearly grasped something of that by faith, and so he was justified, we're told, by apprehending something of Christ by faith, and he became the father of all who believe as he believed, Galatians tells us. He was believing in the promise of God to send Christ Jesus. And so Abraham and the Old Testament saints, they believed looking forward to him. He saw that day and was glad. He rejoiced that that day would come. And we now, on the other side of Christ's having come, we are looking backwards upon his coming and we are sharing in the faith of Abraham as we believe because our ultimately our object of faith is the same, namely the Messiah. So God is promising to Abram here a son that's going to be his heir and many offspring to come eventually. And in this also is, is the promise that the ultimate son, the Messiah, would descend from him as well. And Abram grasped something of all of this. And this reaffirmation was obviously a strength and an encouragement to Abram and his faith. He believed God, we are told. And for us now, as we look back on this, we can see how it is that God has kept faith with Abram. He did indeed make Abram into a great nation. He did indeed give Israel the land of Canaan. And of course, the Christ did eventually come from that nation to bless the Jews first and then also the Gentiles as well, all the nations of the earth. If you remember when Mary discovered that she was and was told that she was going to give birth to this child, she declared that God has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. She's saying this is the very fulfillment of what God had promised to Abraham. Zechariah later in Luke chapter 1 says the exact same thing, that God is fulfilling what he has promised to Abraham. This is housed in these promises we are reading in Genesis 12 through 15 and all throughout Genesis. The Christ has come and the blessing we know from the New Testament, the blessing that Christ gives to the world is dying for sinners, securing righteousness in his obedient life, the righteousness that is credited to sinners by faith, by means of believing. Christ blesses by turning sinners from our wickedness, reconciling us to God Almighty, that we might live to Him. Peter preaches this very thing in Acts chapter 3, to bless you by turning you from your wickedness. The ultimate strengthening of faith comes through the consideration of the Son, the Son of God. 
And we mentioned last week, as we looked at this connection between Christ and Melchizedek, how considering the priesthood of Christ is solid food upon which to nourish our souls, to nourish our faith. Indeed, if you would have your faith strengthened, remember the promise of the Son of God. Remember what it is that He has accomplished. Meditate upon it. Give it consideration. He has brought this long-awaited blessing. He is the great high priest who has died for sinners, who saves to the uttermost, whose blood actually cleanses us from our sins. And cast your hope upon him, the one who cannot fail. This is what Abraham was glad to see from a distance. And you and I have the privilege of seeing it closer up, if you will, with more of the mystery of Christ having been revealed to us in the New Testament scriptures. So we remember this promise of a son. But thirdly, as we consider the strengthening of faith, remember God's promise of a land. God's promise of a land. Having reaffirmed the promise of offspring to Abram, God continues to speak here, verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? God reassures Abram here in verse 7 that this land of Canaan will indeed be given to his offspring. And Abram interestingly responds with another question, how am I to know that I will possess it? Now, given the mention of Abram's faith in verse 6, it's unlikely that we should read this as just pure doubt. It may be that Abram is feeling some, maybe emboldened a little bit, to ask for further sign from God, for yet further assurance, something more that he can have his faith cling to here. Again, as, I, as we said at the outset, even true faith is in need of help and strengthening and encouragement. Abram seems to be looking here for yet further assurance, more to, to hold on to, even though he has been given God's word. And God, again, interestingly, most certainly obliges the man. He doesn't rebuke him or chastise him here. His answer is found in this covenant-making ceremony that we read about in the following verses, this rather, perhaps, odd display, at least to our, to us. So let's look at this. Verse 9, the Lord responds, He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all of these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Again, to our ears, this sounds very strange, very odd. Like This is an odd reply from the Lord to Abram's request, how shall I know? But this was setting up here what was a well-known, at least in ancient times, a well-known covenant-making ceremony. And this may well be why Abram knew that he should cut the pieces of these animals in half. We're not read that he was told to do that, but he was to bring these animals. And Abram goes ahead and divides these pieces. And he stands guard over these animals. This is a, a bloody ritual. If you've ever had any part of this, I know some of you have, you know what this would be like. Uh, this is not, there's not some neat way to do this that just would cauterize the wounds and so on. This is a bloody mess Abram is meant to divide these animals, cutting them in two, and separate these parts to the side. There's some seriousness to what's going on here. These animals, God's creatures, have just died. And now Abram is waiting upon the Lord, and he's chasing away these birds of prey that would come to feed upon the carcasses. And then in verse 12, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Now just take note here for a moment that God's presence is accompanied here by darkness and great dread, we are told. Uh, this, is, this is not uncommon. We see this at Sinai. If you remember Sinai, there's thunder. It's loud. There's fire. The people are terrified. They don't want God to speak anymore lest we die. 
It is not all sunshine and lollipops with the Lord when his presence is upon us. When the God of the universe arrives, even to do good to his people, certainly there were threats at Sinai, we think, don't come near this mountain or you'll die. But even here with Abram, he's coming to Abram to answer Abram's request. He's coming to enter into covenant with Abram, as he did later with the people of Israel on Sinai. Even when he comes on friendly terms, if you will, there is gravity to the presence of the Lord. There is holiness here. There's a weight to this. This is not some sort of flippant thing that is going on here. There's a great dread because God Almighty is present here. What a a disservice so many people and churches have done by acting as if we just kind of show up and we just appeal to the lowest common denominator and We'll just try to entertain you while you're here and whatever's easiest for you. That's just not how it works in Scripture. That's not how God is. The creator of all, when he shows up, there's darkness and great dread here. And he's not even coming in judgment at this point. Uh, It continues, verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. And will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So now Abram does receive some more details and specifics about at least some of how things will play out in the years ahead. The nation that will descend from Abraham will not receive this land of Canaan right away. They will first go to this land that's not named here, but we know later is the land of Egypt. And they will sojourn there. And he says they will even be mistreated there before God finally and eventually will bring them out. And he says here they will even come out with great possessions. And if you remember later in Exodus, when they left, they did plunder the Egyptians on their way out. The people said, get out of here and take our stuff as you go. Abram will not experience that enslavement himself, but the Lord tells him you will die in peace in a good old age. We also see here that the iniquity of those that Joshua and Israel would later dispossess of the land, was not yet complete. He says that of the Amorites. God would be patient with them yet for another 400 plus years. The Amorites likely representing all of the people in this land that God is going to give to his his people. So even this, again, tells us that when that conquering occurs in Joshua... This was not a flippant or reactionary response of God. God was patient. He exercised great restraint with the wickedness of those people until the time had come according to God's appointment to bring about this judgment upon them. And so God's judgment would fall upon the people of this land, the Amorites and the Canaanites and others, while God's blessing would come to the people of Israel who would take the land. Let's continue verse 17 and read to the end. It says, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Now this ritual that occurs here is a mysterious one to be certain, to us at least. But this smoking fire pot and this flaming torch, we're told, passes in between these parts of, this, of these animals, these two halves. And we're told the Lord cut or he struck, he made a covenant here with Abram promising here to give this land to him. The meaning of this ceremony, as I said, would have been known 
to Abram and would have been known to those of Abram's day, though it isn't spelled out here. And that might be part of the reason it's not spelled out here. It was understood. But we do see this explained uh, later in Jeremiah chapter 34, where a similar thing occurs in verses 18 and 19. Here's what we read there. And the men who transgressed my covenant, the Lord speaking, and did not keep the terms of the covenant they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and passed between its parts. The officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf. This, this is Jeremiah is referring to a different ceremony but it's the, than, than what we read in Genesis 15. But it's the same idea. These animals, these calves were cut in two and the people passed through it and they made promises and they swore a covenant before the Lord that they would do certain things. And God says, because you've not kept them, I'm going to make these people like those animals. In other words, I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to judge you. Those striking a covenant would make certain promises. They'd have certain obligations upon them and they are taking those obligations upon themselves and they would swear and promise to uphold those things. And this ceremony was saying, may it be done to me as it has been done to these animals if I do not keep my end of the covenant. That's what this is saying. It is taking a sanction upon oneself, a curse that one should come under if they do not keep their terms, if they do not keep what they have sworn. It is obviously a serious and solemn matter. You don't say this kind of thing lightly. One is agreeing here to be put to death if they do not do what they are saying they will do. And here we have, passing between these parts, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch, which clearly represent God himself passing through the parts. This is reminiscent of what we'll see later of the fire and the smoke upon Sinai when God descended upon Sinai. There's smoke and there's fire. And then later we have the cloud and the, the fire by night that would lead the people of Israel through the wilderness. This is God passing between the parts. Abram, interestingly, does not. He does not pass through the parts, but God does. So recall now that Abram asked God how he would know that this would certainly come to pass. And God's answer is this ceremony in which he is saying, May it be done to me as it has been done to these animals if I do not keep my word. Now obviously God doesn't need this ceremony to make sure that he's going to keep his word. God is God He must keep his word. He does not lie. He does not change like men might. This isn't for God's benefit, this display. It is for Abram's benefit. It is for Abram and for his offspring who would be told of it. It is for us even as we consider the faithfulness of God. This would be something very, very memorable and visible for Abram etched in his mind as he would go about his days and live out the rest of his years. Something for him to remember and for his faith to hold on to in remembrance of God, that God will certainly fulfill his word to Abram and to his offspring. He will bring these people out of slavery. He will give them this land and out of this people in this land will come the Messiah. God will do it. He must do it. And he has assured this to me with this ceremony. It is a help to Abram's faith. And indeed, God did give his people this land. It reached its climax in the reign of Solomon when the boundary extended all the way to the Euphrates River on one end and all the way down to Egypt on the other. We read of this in 1 Kings 4.20. I'll read that. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. That's what he promised. They ate and drank and were happy. Solomon ruled over the kingdoms from the Euphrates 
to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. God was faithful to keep his word and his promise to Abram and to his descendants to give them that land. Though that land of Canaan is not promised to us as our inheritance, there is much here for us and for our faith to find strength as well. For starters, just notice how not one word of God has fallen to the ground in this. He kept what he promised. Remember, he tells Abram, it's going to be 400 plus years your people are going to be in this other land that's not theirs and mistreated and so on. We're just reading over this very quickly. We can see God kept his word. He kept his promise. He brought those people out, plundering Egypt along the way. God has shown and revealed his faithfulness over and over all throughout the scriptures. Faith finds strength here. Also consider the ultimate land of promise of which Canaan is a type. Now, if you remember, we last week talked a little more about typology, and I defined it this way, Old Testament realities that point forward to New Testament realities by way of analogy and escalation. There's Old Testament realities that point forward to New Testament realities. There's a correspondence between the two. There's analogy between the two. But the New Testament reality is greater than the Old Testament reality. We talked about that with Melchizedek and Christ and their two priesthoods. Well, Canaan was a wonderful land flowing with milk and honey that God gave to his people in fulfillment of promises that he had made to Abram. But even Abram foresaw that this was pointing even beyond this to something even greater. That he himself would not receive the land of Canaan in his day. But he was looking even so beyond that to the heavenly Canaan, to a greater city. Hebrews 11, again, makes this explicit to us. That he was looking, he and Sarah, to a better country, a heavenly one. And so God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city, that's Hebrews eleven sixteen, 16, right in between talking about Abraham and Sarah and then Abraham and Sarah again. They were looking even beyond this physical land of Canaan. There's the old hymn that sings that I am bound for the promised land. We've sung that before. We know that song. That's not talking about we are bound for the earthly land of Israel, but the land to which that points ultimately. Because all in Christ are bound for the greater Canaan, the heavenly Jerusalem, the new creation, a land in which no unclean thing will ever enter. This is the ultimate land promise that we find in Scripture, a reality to which Canaan points as a type. There is a greater Canaan into which the greater Joshua victoriously leads us. If you know uh, Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, there's this traveling, this pilgrimage towards a heavenly city. And the final obstacle is this river, and it represents death. Why a river? Because before entering into earthly Canaan, they had to pass through Jordan. They had to pass through this river. It's part of the type of, That Bunyan sees and understands. And just as Abram lived as a stranger in exile in his day, he never even received earthly Canaan in his day as his own. And just as the people of Israel would have to sojourn in Egypt 400 years, so too we await the eternal kingdom to come in its full consummation. We await the greater Canaan, where our true and ultimate citizenship lies. And we live now, Scripture tells us, as strangers and aliens here and now. There's a connection here. And it is setting our eyes upon heavenly Canaan and its eternal shores that will further strengthen and encourage your faith even now. 
This land awaits us. It is the promised reward and inheritance of all who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is an inheritance, we are told in the New Testament, that is being kept for us, undefiled, awaiting God's timing. It is a certain thing. It is a certain reality. We don't possess it yet, yet, but like Abram, we are looking forward in faith to that day. It is certain and it is secure. It is purchased with the very blood of Christ Jesus and it is part of the gift of salvation that is given to us. Eternal life in this land. It is part of the blessing that this Son of God gives to the world, to all who believe in Him. So again, faith is in need of support and strengthening. And nobody simply believes and then just coasts through this life in nothing but strength. It's why we have the Word of God. It's why we have the church. It's among the reasons why we gather to pray and to read the Word and to hear the Word preached and to take the Lord's Supper. These are all things that the Lord has given to us to help us, to strengthen us, to keep us, to bring us through to the end. We feel our weakness now that we call out to the Lord, that we look to Him, that we trust in Him. This is how God would have it. We are dependent upon Him. We don't always feel like we've got everything figured out. Very rarely, I think, do we really feel that way, if we're honest. We're getting by. We're trusting the Lord for today. And we're trusting He's better show up tomorrow. Whatever it might bring. And He does. He does. He's faithful. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. We feast upon his promises. You fix your eyes upon God's character, his faithfulness. Why do we study these things? Why would we consider God, even this Wednesday, this question, what is God? There is much to encourage and strengthen us as we consider the amazing realities. We try to get our heads around the infinite, holy, awesome God who is our Savior, the God in whom we are trusting. We are strengthened in that consideration. And we remember, of course, the eternal Son of God who has propitiated our sins upon the cross. In his great high priestly work in all of its fullness, we set our eyes upon eternity, upon the greater Canaan, where we will one day rest forever. We will enter into God's rest forever. And so God is in the business, if you will, of upholding and strengthening his people's faith. Even as we sojourn through this land with many unknowns, with all of life's ups and downs, our Lord is faithful. He can be no other. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, even in a room this size, There are so many trials and tribulations of various sorts that you have sent to us. Some of these things, Father, we look at and we know, we know we should not be as disturbed by these things as we are. We should not be as unsettled as we are. This is lamentable to us. Father, I pray that we would be renewed, that you, by your spirit, by your word, would strengthen us. Father, for each day, that you would help us to avail ourselves of the means that you have given us, the means of your grace, that we would find strength. Father, that we would not worry about where strength will come from a year from now or many days from now, but just each day look to you. Father, help us to call out to you and to continue to call out to you. 
Your ways are so far beyond us. We don't understand so much of the way you operate. We don't understand how you are working all things together for your ultimate purposes and plans. We look at various things that happen to us. We don't know how you're working all of those things for our own good. But Father, you declare it to be so. And we can see when we look back how you have been faithful to us. How you have brought about good even through trial. And Father, we can look to your word and we can see how you have kept your people and kept your word to your people all throughout history. Father, we see it even as we look at Abraham. Father, we praise you for your faithfulness. We praise you for your grace and for your mercy. We praise you for sending your son Jesus to take up our cause and to secure our redemption. Father, I pray that you would give us eyes of faith, that we would indeed have eternity stamped upon our eyelids. Father, that we would live in light of that day with confidence that it's coming. Father, I pray that you would grant us grace to live each day that we would want to please you and do what honors you, that we would not fear man, but that we would fear you above all. Father, give us great confidence in your goodness and and love toward your people. Father, assurance that you are for us. Lord, we know that these things are so if we are trusting in your Son. But we are weak and we are in continual need of your help. Father, help us to encourage one another in these things, to point each other to Christ, to point each other to your word, to lift one another up as needed. Father, help us to not be so proud as to not be able to acknowledge our weakness. Father, we see weakness throughout Scripture. We see Abram needed help believing. He needed reassurance from you. Father, we've read of David, who spent time weeping in weakness. Father, I pray that we would not be so proud as to acknowledge when we need help and need prayer. Father, we pray that you would bring any who are in difficult days like that through those days, that you would bring us to joy, a settled confidence in you, confidence that you will yet be good and faithful to us, even if today be difficult. Father, we just pray that you would glorify yourself in our own hearts, that you would help us to honor you as we go out from this place to our homes, to our work, as we go out in society to all the different spheres in which we are engaged. Lord, help us to honor you everywhere that we would go. Lord, we are in continual need of your help and your grace. And so we look to you, we pray to you, we call out to you, and we do this in and through the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.